0: Good morning. morning. Uh, My name is Andy Fendrick. I'm an elder here at North Shore Church and a sinner gratefully saved by grace. I have the scripture this morning and prayer. I'll be reading from Judges chapter 20, verse 1 through 22. Then all the people of Israel came out from Dan to Beersheba, including the land of Gilead. And the congregation assembled as one man to the Lord at Mizpah. And the chiefs of all the people of all the tribes of Israel presented themselves in the assembly of the people of God, 400,000 men on foot that drew the sword. Now the people of Benjamin had heard that the people of Israel had gone up to Mizpah. And the people of Israel said, Tell us, how did this evil happen? And the Levite, the husband of the woman who was murdered, answered and said, I came to Gibeah that belongs to Benjamin, I and my concubine to spend the night. And the leaders of Gibeah rose against me and surrounded the house against me by night. They meant to kill me, and they violated my concubine, and she is dead. So I took hold of my concubine, and I cut her in pieces and sent her throughout all the country of the inheritance of Israel, for they have committed abomination and outrage in Israel. Behold, you people of Israel, all of you, give your advice and counsel here. And all the people arose as one man, saying, None of us will go to his tent, and none of us will return to his house. But now this is what we will do to Gibeah. We will go up against it by lot, and we will take ten men of a hundred throughout all the tribes of Israel, and a hundred of a thousand, and a thousand of ten thousand, to bring provisions for the people that when they come they may repay Gibeah for Benjamin for all the outrage that they have committed in Israel. So all the men of Israel gathered against the city, united as one man. And the tribes of Israel sent men throughout all the tribes of Benjamin, saying, What evil is this that has taken place among you? Now therefore give up the men, the worthless fellows in Gibeah, that we may put them to death and purge Israel evil from Israel. But the Benjamites would not listen to the voice of their brothers, the people of Israel. Then the people of Benjamin came together out of the cities of Gibeah to go out to battle against the people of Israel. And the people of Benjamin mustered out of their cities on that day 26,000 men who drew the sword, besides the inhabitants of Gibeah, who mustered 700 chosen men. Among all those were 700 chosen men who were left-handed, Everyone could sling a stone at a hair and could not miss. And the men of Israel, apart from Benjamin, mustered 400,000 men who drew the sword. All these were men of war. The people of Israel arose and went up to Bethel and inquired of God, Who shall go up first for us to fight against the people of Benjamin? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up first. Then the people of Israel rose in the morning and encamped against Gibeah. And the men of Israel went out to fight against Benjamin, and the men of Israel drew up the battle line against them at Gibeah. The people of Benjamin came out of Gibeah and destroyed on that day 22,000 men of the Israelites. Let's pray. Our Father, our God, the one who made the heavens and the earth, all-knowing and all-powerful Creator who exists eternally. Through you all things were made. By your will this earth is here for us. You spoke it into existence. You are a God rightly to be praised in song and in deed and in prayer. We do our best this morning to put into words a prayer of thanksgiving to you. Thankful that we are here in this building as a fellowship of believers, giving to you the honor that you are due. Thankful that we are called Christians, for that means we are adopted sons and daughters of yours. Thankful that we have our hope in the redemptive work done by your son Jesus on the cross, his death to pay the penalty for our sinful lives. Thankful that it is through your grace that we are redeemed, that it is not by our works or the following of the law as in the Old Testament. I am sure we would do no better than they did. Thankful that you are not far from each one of us, that through faith in you and the gift of the Holy Spirit, we only need to stop and call on your name, and you will be there. Acts 17, verses 27 and 28, from Wednesday night's prayer meeting, said, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. And even some of our own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. And with this relationship, we have the ability to bring our requests to you, Lord, directly, without the need of any intermediary. And so today I ask for your blessings, God, on Duncan as he brings your word to us. Strengthen his body and focus his mind. May his words be inspired by you directly. And, Lord, may you also be with any of our North Shore family that could not be here this morning due to bad health. Please heal their bodies. And, God, I ask for your Holy Spirit to mightily fill this place and the hearts of everyone gathered here. Work within the message and through your word. Work through the words spoken and the song sung. Do a miraculous work in each one of us. Turn our hearts of flesh into hearts that seek you and find delight and contentment as we love you more each and every day. Amen.
1: From the text that was read that we remain in Judges in this last part of the book, this morning we examined the second and the longest act, if I could use the word an act, kind of like a three-act play, in this gruesome story that make up the last three chapters of the book of Judges. Judges. Um, when you preach through the book of Judges, and one reason why some people don't preach through the book of Judges is because these last three chapters are messy. That's why we call this a mess in in the sermon title. But essentially, the author gives us a lens through which to look at all of these events at the beginning of this three-chapter section and at the end of the three-chapter section. He kind of bookends it there. And in 19.1, it says, in those days when there was no king in Israel. And in chapter 21, 25, at the end of this section, it says, in those days there was no king in Israel, and he adds, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's the author's way of saying everything you see, all the grotesque stuff that's in this chapter, you have to look at through that particular lens. God's people were not looking to, they were not submitting to Yahweh, their king. They instead were following the examples of their pagan neighbors as they did whatever their self-centered desires led them to. We saw in chapter 17 and 18, this meant that although outwardly the Jews still practiced some of the religious rituals of what it is to be a Jew, they also took those rituals and they twisted them horribly and conformed them to their own self-centered desires. So whatever orthodox expressions that in some way cramped their freedom to live independently, they replaced those with the pagan rituals that enabled them to carry out their self-centered desires. So this was a mongrel religion. It was a mixture of some elements, the sentimentally appealing elements of Judaism, along with the pagan elements that they were around. And that obviously was not honoring to God. That's what is meant by they were doing what was right in their own eyes. They were worshiping the way they wanted to, living the way they wanted to, without any regard to what God wanted. When we looked at chapter 19 last week, we saw the hideous consequences of that life. Um, If you were here, you recall that a Levite and his concubine, and a concubine was kind of a half-wife, half-mistress hybrid, they have a serious marital dispute, and the concubine leaves her husband in Ephraim and flees to her father's home in Bethlehem in Judah. They're apart for about four months when the Levite begins to pine for his wife, evidently, and so he goes to his father in laws to retrieve her. So he journeys there after a few days and returns with his wife to the hill country of Ephraim. But on the way, he's forced to spend the night in a town called Gibeah, which you'd heard earlier read from Andy. And that's in the tribe of Benjamin. And after a long wait in the town square trying to find somebody that would take them in for the night, an old man finally offers the Levite and his party a place to stay. And as they're eating dinner... Wicked men from the town come and pound on the old man's door, demanding that he turn over this Levite, this priest of God, for the purpose of their sexual pleasure. The old man who wants to preserve his honor as a Middle Eastern host, incredibly, foolishly, offers these violent men his virgin daughter and the Levite's concubine for their perverse sexual indulgence. Well, they don't like that idea, so the Levite finally forcibly thrusts the concubine out to these men, and they abuse her sexually all night. Uh, She collapses on the threshold of the old man's house and is discovered by her husband as he's getting ready to leave for home. The Levite callously throws this woman on her donkey, and when he gets home, he then cuts her into 12 pieces sending a portion of his wife's body to each of the twelve tribes of Israel. He's a priest. He does it the same way he would have done a sacrificial animal. Now the Levite sending of his wife's body parts to the tribe produces an outrage among the people of Israel who passionately seek to respond to this grotesque rape and murder but they're not quite sure how to do so, so they gather together. And that brings us up to chapter 20, where the author chronicles the response of the nation that Andy read. As we heard this story up to verse 21, it's important for us not to forget that the author, again, has already given us the lens. All of these people, the people in Benjamin, but also from the other 11 tribes, are all people who were doing what was right in their own lives eyes. They were all in rebellion against God. That helps understand why the events of these chapters play out as they do. These eleven tribes were in severe internal conflict with the tribe of Benjamin, who refused to surrender these rapists from Gibeah. Okay? The story sheds light on some of what happens when there is conflict but when neither side in the conflict is walking closely with God. That's at the heart of the narrative. So this is a a story about conflict and when parties who are in conflict are not walking with God. That may seem to be a fairly narrow lesson. I think you'll find it's more broad than you might imagine. The first consequence of people in conflict and neither person is walking with God is We're selective in who we blame for the conflict. We're selective in who we blame for the conflict. In Judges 20, the Jews rightly assess blame to the tribe of Benjamin uh, after their grotesque treatment of this woman in Gibeah. When the men of Benjamin choose to defend their sexual predators from justice instead of turning them over for punishment, then they're identifying more with the rapists than they are with their own people, the people of God. But as awful as that is, They're not the only guilty parties. There are at least two others who completely escape scrutiny in this situation. So that if you were to read 20 ignorantly, you would think they did nothing wrong. But of course, the word of God, when we look at it as a whole, informs us of these things. The first one is, what about the Levite who dismembers his wife? Okay. Um, Remember, it was his butchering of her that caused initially this great disgust in Israel. Yet when the Levite tells his story, he's given a free pass because he carefully hides behind the guilt of the men of Gibeah. And he pictures them as kind of forcing his hand to perform this gruesome act against his concubine when indeed they did nothing of the sort. The practice of dismembering a human body to mobilize people to action was something that was done in the ancient Near East. Okay, that, this is not taken out of nowhere. There was a custom, but it was only done among pagans. And again, part of what the author wants us to see is how thoroughly paganized the Jews were, that this would be allowed, that this would be seen as appropriate, indicated how deep they had slinked into paganism. So we know it was done by the pagan tribes, but for God's people, and in particular a priest of God, to do this to a person created in the image of God, his wife, his concubine, that's an abominable sin. The Old Testament teaches an ethic about dead bodies that is respectful, consistently respectful. You didn't leave a body on, um, <clears throat> on a tree overnight. It was considered accursed. You were to to handle dead bodies, whole ones in particular, but also pieces with respect, okay? Yet this man doesn't hesitate to butcher his wife and then publicly distribute his wife's body parts. If that seems bad to us, it's because it is bad to us. The fact that the Jews were recognizing it doesn't mean it's not bad. It means they were pagans. They were living like pagans. So this was a horrific offense, and the Levi gets off without so much as a slap on the wrist. <clears throat> Do you hear how that's selective in, in terms of their indignation? Perhaps even more alarming is the question, what about the nation of Israel as a whole? Okay? Where's the sense of national shame and guilt about this? This is part of their covenant family. We might not necessarily appreciate that coming in the West as we do, which wherever everything is individualized, but where is there any honest soul-searching for their own responsibility, especially in a shame-and-honor culture, where the the actions of one person are seen to affect and to bring shame on the entire group. This act should have spurred a time of serious national self-examination. But, as we've seen throughout Judges, There's no sense of community within the Jews at this time, no sense of national identity, and no sense of responsibility to one another. That's the pagan way. The Levite, the priest of God, should have called Israel to a time of national repentance when this was happening. Everybody should have been in sackcloth and ashes. There should have been a time of asking questions like, what have we as a people become that something like this could happen in Benjamin, in Gibeah? We're supposed to be different. Don't miss the irony in the fact that on the one hand they refer to Benjamin as their brother, but they're not behaving at all as a covenant family. When someone in a family does something like this, typically there's some honest soul searching. We see this on the news when there are these mass shootings, don't we? What could we have done? What is our responsibility here after a time of national repentance, the Levites should have then led the people in seeking God's will about their errant brothers. They skipped over an awful lot of that. The reason why none of these things occurred to them is because these people were doing what was right in their own eyes. they become horribly detached from God and horribly detached from each other. That's what happens when you aren't working with God. Somebody doesn't come to church for several weeks at a time. There may be several reasons for that. One reason is they're not walking with God, and their relationship with people mirrors their relationship with God. The Jews were in apostasy from God, and so they weren't relating to one another appropriately. There's a connection. There always is. This internal conflict with Benjamin was simply the way that God chose to reveal what had been there for an awful long time, which is no community, no love for one another, no, no sharing together responsibilities. So They're very selective in who they blame. That's one consequence. The second consequence of being in conflict with someone else when neither one of you or neither one of your groups is in fellowship with God is related, and that is you form judgments and make decisions without God's input. It's very closely related, but you form judgments and you make decisions without God's input. When the decision to bring retribution on the Benjamite rapists is being formed— God is nowhere in the picture. He's imported into the conflict later, and he's given a token role, but only after 400,000 troops had been mustered. In verse 7, the godless, wife-dismembering Levite tells his version of the story, and he assumes a position of national leadership here. He says, Behold, you people of Israel, all of you, give your advice, and counsel here. Okay, the obvious question is, in a land where Yahweh is king, what difference does it make what the people's advice and counsel is? Okay? Also, why is a Levite who is called to bring the people to God, why is he instead calling these Jews to look only to their own fallen wisdom? This is incredibly presumptuous of these Jewish leaders here to think that they, completely independent of their king, possessed the authoritative opinion on this difficult issue. In the book of Joshua, by contrast, when God's people were conquering the promised land, again and again you had God counseling, God speaking, God providing the advice with Joshua before a battle, telling him what to do, at least assuring him that he would be with them. There was a dependence upon God in Joshua, in Joshua to tell the Jews how to execute the holy war that Yahweh was waging against these pagans. In this story, we're not talking about destroying Canaanites, whom God had already declared a holy war on. We're talking about judging your own brothers. This is a lot more complicated. This is a lot more grave. But the Levite calls for a verdict from the people. And without God's counsel... They say in verse 9, but now this is what we will do to Gibeah. We will go up against it by lot. In other words, they will cast lots, roll the dice today, draw straws, whatever, to determine how you'll go up, in what order you'll go up. Okay? The lot was supposed to be a way to look to God. Okay? But you hear their half-hearted practice of the religion at best. At best it's half-hearted. They want success, so in this token way, they bring God in to tell them which tribe should go first. But God is not even consulted on the main decision of beginning a civil war among his own people. Okay? It's rather incomplete, don't you think? The author wants us to see the horrible consequences of this independence from God in the first two battles with the Benjamite warriors, both of which end in disaster. Think about this astonishing story for a minute. When the people consult God about which tribe will lead the charge, he answers in verse 18, Judas shall go up first. So then they send 22,000 of their men in, all of whom die in battle against the Benjamites. It's a slaughter. It's the same kind of utterly one-sided victory that the Jews repeatedly won against the Canaanites when they first entered the Promised Land. Only this time it's happening to the Jews, from other Jews. To some it might feel that God is being somewhat deceptive in this story. Now what I mean by that is, he tells Judah to go up first and fight against the the men of Benjamin. Some would infer that this was an indication that he approved this plan. I mean, why didn't God send a prophet to his people at this point, rebuke the Jews for what had largely been a godless process? Why does he instead give them just enough information to lead them into a massacre? This is the way we need to read the Bible, ask those hard questions. Several things need to be said. First of all, of all the questions that the Jews needed to ask God, this one about who would go up first was the least necessary. This is purely a token. This is a bone, if you will, thrown to God. And we know that for at least two reasons. First of all, the victims of the atrocity in Gibeah were all from Judah. So justice itself would indicate that the first tribe to go up would be Judah. But beyond that, if you go back to the first chapter in Judges, the pattern is set very clearly, and that is that Judah always goes in first. Judah was the largest tribe. Judah was the leading tribe. Judah became the default first tribe, okay? The point is that the Jews aren't genuinely looking for God's guidance here in any meaningful way. This is a done deal. This question's already done. It was self-evident who would lead the charge. They were simply seeking to get God involved to help secure a victory. Tipping their hat to God, if you will. The question the Jews should have asked God were questions like this. Is there anything we need to do to prepare our hearts before we fight? Do we need to call a national assembly? Do we need a time of fasting and prayer, a time of worship, maybe a time of confessing our serial sin of idolatry? That might be a good idea. Or how do you want us to wage this warfare, Lord? This is your warfare. If you want us to do it, how do you... How will you be fighting for us, God? Those are good questions. If those questions had been asked, so much suffering could have avoided. But they were so paganized, they were so spiritually blind at this point, that the only question that they ask is, who first? Which was a ridiculous question anyway. God is not being deceptive in any way here. He tells them the truth. He just chooses to tell them not the whole truth. Because as, as a God that's been relegated to an onlooker... He's been dismissed from the process. God's not being deceptive here. What he is doing is he's using the tribe of Benjamin to bring his judgment on the other tribes of Israel for doing what was right in their own eyes. That's what he's doing. Again, we see God is using a messy situation with sinful, evil people to bring about justice as he does all throughout the book of Judges. Verses 22 and 23. Here's the Jews' preparation for the second battle. But the people, the men of Israel, took carriage, this is after they'd lost 22,000 men, and again formed the battle line in the same place where they had formed it on the first day. And the people of Israel went up and wept before the Lord until the evening, and they inquired of the Lord, shall we again draw near to fight against our brothers, the people of Benjamin? And the Lord says, go up against them. Okay? Okay. In a remarkable response, the Lord answers, go up against them. And verse 24 continues, So the people of Israel came near against the people of Benjamin the second day, and Benjamin went against them them out of Gidea the second day and destroyed 18,000 of the men of the people of Israel. All these were men who drew the sword. Well, this isn't working out too well for the 11 tribes, is it? They send 18,000 more men to their death. We know that the Benjamite side had almost zero casualties. We know that because in verse 15 it says they had 26,000 troops mobilized, and later in verse 35 it tells us in the third and final battle, where they were finally destroyed, that they lost 25,100 and 600 men survived. Okay. That means that they've lost only 300 men up to this point in comparison to the 40,000 that the 12 tribes have lost. This is a rout. The inescapable fact here is that the Lord orders the Israelites to walk into a bloodbath. You can't get away from that. Twice he tells them to go into battle, the first time by just naming who would go first, and twice the outcome is disastrous. This makes no sense unless you remember that all the Jews, not just the people of Benjamin, had been rebelling against God, doing what was right in their own eyes, and deserving of his judgment. Think about God's justice here. As we've seen over and over again in the book of Judges, God has repeatedly used the oppression of the pagan nations around his people to bring judgment on them and to bring them to a place where they cried out to him for deliverance. In this instance, he uses this sinful act of this perverse man of Gibeah and this wretched Levite as the trigger by which he uses to bring judgment on his sinful people in these 11 tribes. Earlier in the book, God used foreign oppressors to judge his people. Here, God uses the prideful independence of his own people to punish them and to cause them to cry out to him. They finally begin to be humbled after this second military disaster, And in verse 26, we read, Then all the people of Israel, the whole army, went up and came to Bethel and wept. They sat there before the Lord and fasted that day until evening and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. When they inquire of God, notice what they ask. Shall we go out once more to battle against our brothers, the people of Benjamin, or shall we cease, literally, or shall we desist? Okay, they're starting to get close, aren't they? right this time there's no encouraging one another there's no half-hearted inquiries no calling upon the people for the verdict there's finally some element of humility in Israel's response they fast they worship they cry out to god with humility god just tell us what to do and we will do it and if you want us not to do anything we won't do it okay it took the shed blood of 40,000 of their fellow jews but at least these people who had been doing what was right in their own eyes for at least this moment of time after they've been brutally disciplined are finally in a place where God can work through them. We're not going to read the detailed account of the third battle because even though it is very detailed and much longer than the first two, it basically communicates a very simple truth. Whatever went right for Benjamin in the first two battles went wrong for Benjamin in the third battle. And whatever went wrong for the 11 tribes in the first two battles goes right for the Israelites. And the complete change of fortune is because of what it says in verse 35, the Lord defeated Benjamin before Israel. That's the first time it said that. The Lord defeated Benjamin before Israel. So God steps into the battle, and when God steps into the battle, the outcome is assured. Do you hear how Yahweh had used Benjamin to judge the other tribes in the first two battles, and now Israel had cried out in humility, he uses the other 11 tribes to bring judgment on Benjamin for their wicked behavior. The net effect of God's working with Israel here is that all of those who'd been doing what was right in their own eyes were judged. This is just another example, again, of judges' In Judges, God using evil people to bring justice. Unfortunately, in this case, the evil people were his own paganized people. It would be heartening to tell you that the Jews have finally learned their lesson and there is a rosy ending in chapter 21. That's not the case. They go right back to their independence from God. This is only temporary, which we'll talk more about next time. One lesson for us is this is what happens when a compromised, self-centered people get into a conflict. And it can be an interpersonal conflict. The principles are the same, whether it's national or interpersonal, or church-wide, or church-to-church. Both sides lose. No one gains anything. No one learns anything in those cases. And the author wants us to see what happens when the Benjamites, who have lived like pagans, refuse to purge the evil from their tribe. And he wants us to note the consequences when the Israelites, who had been living independently from God in a time of conflict out of habit, choose to lean on their own fallen judgment instead of living in dependence upon Yahweh. The truth is, seasons of conflict within our marriages, within our families, church or other groups reveal where our hearts really are and what we're really trusting in. If you really want to find out where your heart is, What was the last conflict you had? What was it about and how did you respond? We don't like to go there because most of us don't do very well. That's what's happening here. This is just a revelation of what's been going on in their hearts for a long time. It just took a conflict to bring on all this mess. If they had been God-centered and truth-driven, this would have looked very, very differently. And that's a warning to us. If our relationship to God is mostly self-centered, then what will come to the surface in the fire of affliction or in the difficulties of conflict will be what we see here. On the other hand, if a person is walking in the Spirit, if a person is walking closely with God, and a time of great need or conflict comes along, that's a time when the Holy Spirit can really shine through that person. Because they're acting like they shouldn't act. They're acting in ways that are more like Jesus. Up to this point, we've been looking at the sins of God's people to hear the warning their actions given to us. But we're supposed to be people who are looking for God in the Bible, right? So when we look at God in the Bible, what is his response when his people are in conflict but are out of fellowship with him? It's always important when we read the Old Testament to be looking at the picture from God's perspective, not simply or even mainly to look for moral lessons for us. Where is God? What does this say about God? Well, what does he do in these situations where you've got people who aren't walking with him and who are in conflict? Well, God will remain largely silent when his people in their blindness call on him only selectively to solve their conflicts. That's the lesson here. God will remain silent, largely silent, when the people in their blindness call on him only selectively to solve their conflicts, which is what they're doing. They're calling on him selectively. God, we'd like you to do this. We'd like you to tell us who goes in first. You stay in your box, God. Tell us who to go in first and we'll take care of the rest. Thank you very much. And God in that says basically, I'm not needing to say much here. The Jews simply assume that given this huge sin of Benjamin that God would fight for them and bring his judgment on them, these terrible wicked people of Gibeah? Well, the lie behind that faulty belief is that they really knew what the source of the conflict was and they didn't, Okay. The paganized Jews believed their problem as a nation was this disgusting incident in Gibeah. And they assumed that God would help them resolve this conflict and bring about justice on these evil perpetrators. What they were blind to, because they were living more like the pagans than God's chosen people, was that what happened in Benjamin wasn't the problem. It was only a symptom of the real problem. The real problem wasn't limited to the sexual sin in Gibeah and the murder. The real problem was the nation wasn't doing what was right in their own eyes. Remember, that's the lens we have to read this through. Had the Jews come to God in repentance over that problem, there would have been no loss of life here. But when, because of their spiritual blindness, they come to God with an incredibly skewed and horribly superficial understanding of what the conflict was actually about, he does nothing to help them solve what they thought the problem was which was to clean up Benjamin. He uses this situation to humble the entire nation by bringing through a costly civil war that would bring them to their knees in repentance and contrition for their main sin. The lesson here is not that we must have God's exact, precise perspective on a problem in order for him to help us in the problem. What it does mean is we need to be bringing the main problem to God for him to work on. If we don't, he will remain largely silent. I don't know how many times I've seen conflict in churches where you had two sides and they were both going at each other and they were both going at each other. And even if you brought in a peacemaker type person, if they weren't willing to sit and say, let's reexamine whether or not we really have the full understanding of what is going on here. Is that the issue, what we're talking about? Or is the issue something underneath us? And a lot of times it's not about the behaviors, it's about the attitudes. It's about selfishness and it's about pride. And if they'd repent of their selfishness and their pride, guess what would happen to the other issues? They'd all go away. But when you're insisting that God would help you on something, when you're dealing with it at a superficial level, he remains silent. It's when we humble ourselves after they did after 40,000 people had been killed and said, okay, God, what's going on here? Then he'll come in, and he'll move on our behalf. This is one reason why marriages end, and churches split, and friendships are fractured. As believers, we expect God to help us in our reconciliation, and he is faithful to do that, but only as we're willing to take a hard look at the conflict to see what the root sins are. And they're generally attitudes, values, priorities, and agendas. We tend to assume the sins are the specific behaviors involved. Someone lies or cheats or steals, and sometimes it can be as simple as that, but often the problem runs deeper than that. Often it's that neither party is walking as close to God as they think they are, and that blinds them to sins like selfishness and pride. Sins that are more attitudes. When we aren't willing to go to those much harder places, this story illustrates that God will often allow the conflict to run its course without any intervention because neither side is willing to look at the real problem. And we hear of this all the time. We hear of it in personal relationships and marriages. And people walk away and say, we just don't understand what happened. How could that happen? Well, one of the reasons it happens is because they weren't willing to look for the real problems. They'd found the problem. Thank you very much. This is the problem. That's not the problem. The problem is the hard attitude underneath that. If that gets addressed, guess what happens to the conflict? If they're willing to express apologies and restitution and whatever else. We need to consider the possibility that God's failure to resolve a conflict is an expression of his loving discipline of us to cause us to see what the real and deeper issues are. How different do these Jews relate to God than Jesus did relate to God when he was on earth, because we always want to bring this back to Jesus, don't we? The Jews receive God's brutal judgment because of their separation from God, and Jesus receives God's brutal judgment on the cross when he became separated from God for us. The Jews failed to consult God about their situation, and in his judgment he remained silent in response to their cries for mercy. Jesus also sought the Father's will, but on the cross the Father remained silent to his cries for mercy because he was receiving our judgment. The Jews received a punishment they richly deserved. Jesus received a punishment he in no way deserved. And thank God he went to the cross because we all need the power of his shed blood to cleanse us and to forgive us of our sin. And if you're here today and you've not placed your trust in Jesus Christ, if he isn't your Savior and your Lord and your treasure, talk to one of the elders today or somebody you came with We'd love to do that for you. We'd love to help you with that. May God give us all the grace to walk closely with him in faith and repentance so that when we experience a conflict in our lives, we'll be able to see what he's really doing because we're willing to face the root issues for his glory and for our joy. Let's pray. Father, I'm just, I never cease to be amazed at these huge scale stories that end up ultimately being about very practical issues for us if we trace them down to their principles. Father, thank you that you never change, that your answers are the same today as they were 3,000 years ago. Father, I pray for anyone in this room who is or soon will be in conflict that you would give us the grace to humble ourselves and not be superficial and blame somebody else or even to to look into our own life superficially, but God, that you'd give us the grace to actually see what is the root. What are some things that maybe you've been trying to speak to us for years about, but we haven't been willing to listen? Thank you, God, that you use conflict that way. You use conflict to expose the problems that we've had, the sins that we've been harboring for years, to bring them to light, to help us see them, so that we can bring them to the cross, and find cleansing, forgiveness, and sanctification. Father, if there's anybody here who doesn't know you, I pray that your Spirit of God would be at work in them, helping them to see that this is their problem, that they don't know the Lord of glory, that they are on the outside looking in, and that they need the blood of Jesus to cleanse them from their sin too. Father, we we commend all these people, and God, we commend ourselves to you, and pray that you would use this word for Jesus' sake and in his name. Amen.